gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Hey listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, talking about our dispatch and dispatch media. Assume I said all sorts of incredibly persuasive things to get you to become paid members of the dispatch community, and let's just move on. Um, I want to say up front, do not worry, and this is mostly aimed at Caleb, our producer, um, who has to listen to these solo podcasts on Friday nights to get them out. and. Um, and then he has to, uh, um, you know, skip happy hour or whatever it is he does, um, to get them done for, um, posting on Saturday morning that I will not be recording for an hour and 40 minutes. Like I did last week. I was kind of stunned how time got away from me. Um, I think part of the problem is, is I just got a lot of weird things on my mind and I'm not planning on writing a book right now and normally when i'm in this kind of state i would think about channeling it into a book of some kind um a bunch of people have asked me including um, an editor friend of mine if i wanted to write a book about conservatism i've been asked this for like 20 years at one stage or another to write you know my magnum opus on what is conservatism or whatnot and i guess the idea appeals to me but uh it just, it doesn't appeal to me enough. Um, now if someone could give me a sizable advance for my, um, um, science fiction books or, uh, zombie apocalypse books that have been rattling around in my brain for a decade, um, that'd be a different story. But, um, for now I just don't, don't feel like doing it, but the last couple of weeks have made me more inclined to rethink that. So anyway, be it here nor there, just explaining why, um, I keep, uh, vomiting up so much stuff on these podcasts. Um, so where to begin? Um, speaking of vomiting up stuff, I wrote a very long G file on Wednesday that if you were a paid member of the dispatch community, you would be able to read, um, that a bunch of people liked a bunch of people who I respect sent me very nice notes about it. Um, a few people in the comments really didn't like it and that's okay. Um, quite a few people in the comments really did like it. That's great. Um, but it's this idea that has sort of been springing around in my head for a long time and it's weird. Like I actually know a good bit about elite theory. Um, I actually took a whole seminar on it in college and, and elite theory, which is basically just it really, it's as I wrote, you know, it starts in, um, you know, you can go back to the ancient Greeks or whatever and, and find versions of elite theory back then too, to be sure. Certainly there's a lot of it in Plato and Aristotle and all that. But normally among social scientist types, when you talk about elite theory, you're talking about the work initially of um, these guys. Um, I can't remember their first names. They're, they're called, it's called the Italian school, even though a couple of them were like born in Germany to like Italian nobility or whatever, but it's called the Italian school. And it's these guys, uh, Pareto, Mosca, and um, Michelle. Michelle's? Michelle. Um, and it looks at how elites work. And they use the term elite in a completely non-pejorative 
um, sort of non-normative sense. Uh, they just simply look at how the people who tend to be ruling in any society operate, how they gain power, how they hold on to power, um, how they trade power, how they use power, yada, yada, yada. Um, obviously there's a lot of Machiavelli in this stuff. And, um, um, and, you know, this is sort of, this cuts into a, 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 by way of digression. Um, a standard line of critique among conservatives going back a very long time. Um, that there's sort of a problem in our culture because we live in a very democratic culture, small d, um, that we have a hard time with the whole concept of elites. You know, one of, as I've talked about at nauseum, one of the greatest thing the founding fathers did was completely abolish titles of nobility um, when they founded this country. And it's one of the more, most radical things that was ever done in human political history. Um, and we almost never talk about it. We never pay attention to it. But this idea of natural aristocracies, and the founders definitely believed in natural aristocracies, um, and that those natural aristocracies should be formalized and institutionalized in all sorts of ways. Um, is ancient. It goes back to the dawn of time. It exists in virtually every society everywhere. I mean, I'd be interested if prior to 1600, if some listener could point me to a significantly complex and advanced society that, that did not have some notion of nobility or aristocracy in it anywhere in the world. I'm unaware of it. Um, maybe there's some stuff in some Aboriginal cultures or Native Americans, now that I think about it. But for the most part, it is a universal phenomenon, even though it may take different forms um, in different places. And, um, and the founders just sort of got rid of it. And, um, and that was a great and glorious thing. I mean, and you have some interesting stuff like John Adams thought that, um, that since aristocracies were naturally occurring things, and by which he meant not that like, there were, um, you know, it wasn't like there were certain people with midichlorians in their blood that would rise to the top, but his sort of study of history just showed that there are certain people imbued with good fortune and ambition that will rise to the top. And, um, and it's not exactly the same Jeffersonian understanding of like a, a natural elite that, you know, why he founded the university of Virginia or whatever. But, um, one of Adam's ideas, one of Adam's arguments for the creation of the Senate was to make it like explicitly like the House of Lords so that the naturally occurring aristocracy would be bound up in the American project in a way that their ambition um, could be harnessed for good. And um, he's got some great stuff in his writings about how basically aristocracy is like a monster and you have to chain it and and put a yoke on it to make it work for you or it'll work against you and all this kind of stuff anyway in our democratic culture um we don't like the ideas of elites but we really like some elites um you know you have like i you know as i often say um nobody ever wants to have um their heart transplant surgeon be in the meaty part of the bell curve in terms of 
the distribution of success and skill. We like elite surgeons. We like elite military. We like elite athletes. We're perfectly comfortable talking about them in those terms. But when it comes to politics and culture, we get all kind of squirrely because one of the great things about American culture is this inbred thing that says, you're not the boss of me. You're not better than me. Um, you don't get to tell me what to do just because you think you're better than me. And I get that. And it's one of the things I do like about American culture, but it can have negative consequences um, when we start thinking about politics and whatnot, because part of the whole point of an elite is that it's supposed to be made up of the best people. And this is sort of the gist of the G file I wrote on Wednesday. Elites by themselves are inevitable. There will always be elites. Um, it's, it's just the question of who will be the members of it. Uh, the Soviet Union certainly had elites, you know, members of the party were essentially an aristocracy. Uh, you know, the, the new class theory, theorists who wrote about the Soviet Union were pretty explicit about how they were a superior class that got to boss around the lower classes, the proletariats and the, and the work, you know, which are the workers, um, you know, the farmers, the, the peons, even the army. In many cases, the, the highest ranking people were also party members because the party controlled everything. And if you think of the party, you know, if you were a visitor from Mars and you looked at the Soviet Union and you looked at, say, 15th century France, you would say, oh, OK, these are different forms of aristocracy. And I've talked about this a bunch about how my favorite example about this is North Korea, where they've literally recreated aristocracy in the sense that um, if you were a descendant of certain classes of people who were seen as working with the Chinese, you are basically born into serfdom because you are a descendant of those sinful people. Um, I read somewhere that there are, I think, 53 different classes or stations of life in North Korea. And of course, at the top is, is literally they're like their sun king. You know, the stories about Kim Jong-un, you know, the propaganda about Kim Jong-un and those guys is basically a North Korean version of divine right of kings that has almost nothing to do with, um, you know, Marxist-Leninism or anything like that. But in any society, this is what, um, um, what's his name? Michelle's was talking about with the iron law of oligarchy. This isn't, this isn't some scary concept. It's just how life works. In any organization, there's going to be somebody or somebody, some group of people who are going to have to make decisions. And because they make decisions, they have access to information, what um, Michelle's called uh, administrative secrets. And they can use those secrets of understanding how the system works from the inside to extend their power. And they can also use the fact that they have to make decisions to reward allies and punish foes. And um, sometimes that, you know, that can sound sinister, but if you ever worked on a high school yearbook or college newspaper um, or helped organize a canned food drive at an elementary school, you know that 20% of the people, and sometimes much smaller than that, do 80% of the work. And they end up running things. And in fact, this guy Pareto, he came up with um, which was called the, uh, the Pareto rule. Had, there were a bunch of different Pareto rules. So he came up with, with what is colloquially known as the 80-20 rule. 
and the 80-20 rule, it's sort of like the Fibonacci series. It's one of these things that just shows up in all sorts of different places. Um, the old truism that, you know, 20% of the sales force in a company um, account for 80% of the sales, it holds up across a lot of different things. Um, Pareto even found that that 20% of the plant of the uh, pea plants in his garden produced 80% of the peas. And um, this sort of thing is just, for whatever weird reason, inevitable, um, either, be, well, for all sorts of reasons. And so I, I, I knew a lot about all this kind of stuff, but I've been paying so much attention to, um, I shouldn't say so much attention. I've been paying more attention than I'd like to the arguments a lot of a lot of these various, they're now called the new right by some people. And I guess that's fine because it's a good catch-all that includes everyone from Trumpists to nationalists to um, industrial planners um, and the rest. You know, all the people who think that the old fusionist, traditional conservative um, uh, philosophy or organizing principles need to go, they're getting lumped in under the new right. The only reason I am reluctant to use the phrase is if you know much about conservative political and intellectual history, like every 15 years, there's another new right. Um, and, you know, there was a time when Buckley was part of the new right. And then there was, you know, the, the Reaganites, some of the Reaganites were considered the new right. And um, Goldwater was the new right. And uh, you know, this is one of these things that is just what you call the group that is trying to supplant the old right or the existing right or whatever. Even the phrase neocon is basically just a sort of a boutique version of the new right locution. And so there are a bunch of people who are fashioning themselves as part of the new right. The guys, you know, in Claremont orbit, at least some of them, certainly at that place, the American mind, uh, Orrin Cass over at American Compass. Um, and obviously all of the sort of Trumpy types are all kind of new right. And I think that one of the, the reason why it was sort of a weird epiphany for me is that, um, I guess we talked about this maybe last week or the week before I mentioned how, um, I, you know, it was this idea that Rob Long kind of put in my head that a lot of the woke Marxist or forget Marxist, just sort of the woke, um, anti-racism stuff that is, you know, swamping so many liberal institutions. Um, you know, Rob made the point, and I think there's a lot of merit to it, that a lot of this is better explained at ambitious young people trying to get people who are ahead of them on the career ladder out of the way. Um, and it's, I'm not saying that everyone is insincere about it, but there is a remarkable way in which motivated reasoning allows people to use what they believe or their truly sincere core ideological precepts to advance their career. And, you know, maybe because, um, I kind of turned my back on a lot of that, you know, which is why I called this thing the remnant, which is part of why we started the dispatch and all that kind of stuff is that I am more comfortable than many, maybe just because I'm of a certain age, um, in not doing 
not playing that game, um, that I can see this stuff a little differently from some people or, or maybe not, I don't know, but regardless, um, I think that a big chunk of the stuff on the new right is really just trying to find arguments that will, um, you know, they, they phrase it in language of anti-elitism and, and all that. When really what it is, is that it, it's that one group of eager people, um, again, who may be sincere in what they say they believe, but they see an opportunity to replace this uh, existing group of elites with another group of elites, namely themselves. And I, I see that um, our friend Jack Butler got in some trouble for um, making very much this argument about some guys, I don't remember their names, um, basically wanting uh, you know, the existing swamp to get out of the way and and as Jack put it, to, and they they want to run the swamp now. And this elicited a backlash over the American mind. They have what I think is a very silly, overwrought editorial um, attacking National Review. Um, it will go in the um, massive groaning uh, file folder that holds such attacks that have gone on for the last 65 years against National Review. Um, but uh, this kind of stuff is going on all over the place. And um, I would give you an example. If you listen to the Orrin Cass interview on the Dispatch podcast from last Friday, um, you know, Orrin Cass, who's a nice guy and has some smart things to say and all that, but he sort of burst on the scene when he left the Manhattan Institute and formed this new group called American Compass. Or Comp I cannot, I, I, I can't hear it, but I am told I've, I, I, I pronounce compass as um, egregiously as David French pronounces dispatch. Um, anyway, he started this group, American Compass, and it's, you know, he, he, it's a great fanfare. He opened it up by saying that, you know, conservatism has been um, uh, controlled by market fundamentalists for the last 30 years. It's sort of a more highbrow version of Tucker's nonsense about how libertarians have been running Washington for the last 30 years. And I wrote a G file about it. We can put it in the show notes because I just think it's just a historical claptrap. I just think it's untrue that market fundamentalists have complete, had a complete monopoly over, um, conservative politics, conservative intellectual affairs, think tank world and all the rest. Um, and if you listen to the interview, uh, I, I'm, persuaded let me put it this way i'm persuaded that orrin cast cannot make a persuasive case that he's right about this market fundamentalist thing um um and you know one of the more ironic things about it is is that you know he's um he's now taking essentially the ai position uh you know and he he, he, he impugns ai quite often and you know i'm an ai guy um as being, you know, the sort of the, you know, the sanctum sanctorum of market fundamentalism. And he is taking Scott Winship's position about Mitt Romney's uh, child tax credit thing, saying that, no, it has, there has to be a work requirement. Well, you know, if, if, if AI is the Vatican of market fundamentalism, it seems kind of odd that, that Oren would be taking um, the same position that, you know, one of the leading guys at AI and a lot of other people at AI are taking. 
But if you just listen to his story about, um, you know, to get, make the case for market fundamentalism on the right, it's just, you know, he cites a tweet from Nikki Haley about lowering taxes. Um, and I'll agree, you know, if, if you want to make the argument that, you know, conservatives have been too beholden to lowering taxes, to tax cuts as central to their entire economic agenda. I'm, I'm open to that. In fact, that is something that such alleged market fundamentalists as Ramesh Panuru have been arguing for, for years. Um, but regardless, uh, tax cut mania is not synonymous with market fundamentalism. Um, and, you know, and other examples of this are like some offhand comment from some economist over lunch or whatever. And meanwhile, you really get to see why this, this argument doesn't actually hold water when um, Sarah and Declan asked him about his position on this Romney plan. And he makes a very good case. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the argument that, that work requirements are good. And I think that we don't really appreciate what a huge sea change the, you know, the, the Biden COVID relief bill is and how we've moved beyond the arguments about living within our means and deficit spending and debt and all that kind of stuff and, and the importance of work. But, um, it's, you know, and so, but the, the, the weird thing is, is that if, if, if supposedly Republicans have been enthralled under the market fundamentalist hegemony of the American Enterprise Institute and other places, um, he doesn't make that argument when he is responding to criticisms from the left. When his position is criticized from the left, he says, I mean, again, listen to the interview. If I'm being unfair, please let me know. He says in the interview, you know, look, the left says that if I'm not in favor of this, I want people to starve. And, you know, I try to point out to them that, you know, America already has this very generous, you know, and, and well-developed, you know, social welfare system. And, and he talks about how the, you know, um, you know, the benefits of welfare reform that, you know, came in the 1990s. And he concedes that um, George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, that none of them were market fundamentalists. Well, I mean, look, if welfare reform, which was very much driven from by conservatives like Tommy Thompson and others, um, and places like the American Enterprise Institute, and I know that because I was there in the 1990s when AI was all in for welfare reform, and so was Heritage. Um, if if those kinds of reforms that emphasized work and got people off a permanent dole are so important to keep in mind, then where was the influence of the market fundamentalists? Um, you know, it, it, anyway, my larger point, I don't want to dwell on this stuff, but my larger point is, is that I see the, you know, Cass's argument more as a branding exercise that is taking advantage of a particular moment in um, American politics and conservative politics that doesn't want to hear about free market stuff anymore. And yet when you get into the nitty gritty of it, Cass's positions, you know, I mean, I got my disagreements to the extent I understand all of those positions, but um, when you actually get into the nitty gritty of the public policy stuff, he is basically well within the 40 yard lines of where conservatives, at least some conservatives, most conservatives have been for the last 30 years, but you have to make a splash and you have to distinguish yourself 
with a certain kind of branding and marketing. And so shouting market fundamentalists while actually, you know, trafficking in, in fairly conventional conservative policymaking um, is the way to do it. And um, I'll give you another example. I mean, this, this gets to this other point I keep making about how all of this rhetoric about turning the GOP into a new workers party and, um, and, and, and siding with the workers over, you know, big tech and big business and all these kinds of things that we're hearing from people like Rubio and others, that all sounds great in press releases and in speeches and, you know, in tweets. But you look at like just today, Rubio took the side of um, a bunch of striking workers at like some warehouse or something against Amazon. And I think it was Alabama. And um, maybe the workers are right. I don't know. But I think for me, what it highlights is just how much the all of this rhetoric about, um, you know, a new clear path forward and that breaks with the old corrupt consensus about limited government and free markets um, sounds great. But then when you, it turns out that they don't have very many ideas to back it up. The actual, I mean, like, like siding with a union and a strike against a big business. This is some like proof of some novel way of thinking about things. It's, it's, it's novel for a Republican to be thinking in those terms, but it's not novel policymaking. It's not some path breaking new way of thinking about things. It's basically Rubio acting like a garden variety Democrat. And, you know, I, I wish some conservatives out there who are making these kinds of arguments would at least acknowledge that, you know, the Democratic Party isn't completely run by idiots. And they've had, you know, these ideas about industrial policy and being pro-worker for generations. And, and if you start from the premise that the government can do these things to help workers and that the government can intervene and pick winners and losers, odds are that all of the serious thinking on that stuff has already been done by Democrats. And, you know, it be, I would have much more respect for all of this talk if it didn't sound like warmed over 1980s Lester Thoreau stuff. Um, but instead you get this idea that, well, we're not like the socialist left and we're not, um, and you know, we're, when, but we're champions of this new paradigm of helping the workers. And then you say, okay, well, you know, where's the beef? And it's Gary Hart's policy papers from, you know, the Atari Democrat days. I just, I, 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 I need to be persuaded. And so this gets me back to the elite thing. One of the ways elites, so if you, if you, simply accept that there are always going to be elites. Um, it helps you understand American politics right now in the, in the narrow particulars, like I was just talking about, but also on, on the broad sweep of things. Ted Cruz goes around all the time talking about how he's against the coastal elites and the latte sipping elites and how he stands up for real Americans and all that kind of stuff. And in the context of the specific policy stuff that he's talking about, I probably side with him because Ted Cruz is pretty conservative and all that. Um, but in no way, shape or form is Ted Cruz not an elite simply because he rails against elites. First of all, he's a freaking United States Senator. He was a Supreme court. He was a, you know, a, a, um, star at Harvard law school. He was the solicitor general of Texas. 
his wife is a managing director of Goldman Sachs. And um, the idea that somehow he's, you know, he's been plucked from the hoi polloi um, or, you know, the demos and raised up as this journeyman proletarian fighting against the entrenched aristocratic elites is nonsense. He's basically the he he's basically a leader of one faction of elites that is at war, politically speaking, with another faction of elites. And that goes for pretty much everybody else out there talking about how they're standing up against the powerful, whether they're on the left or the right. You don't think Elizabeth Warren is a member of an elite? Um, of course she is. But she's out there talking about how she's going against the economic elite because she hates the billionaire class. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, and this gets into that Scott Alexander stuff we talked about a while ago. Um, you know, Donald Trump, by any sort of left-wing understanding of, you know, sort of class-based analysis, was, of course, a member of the elite. But he was aligned with a, a slice of the culture that doesn't see itself as elite. It sees itself as being put upon and oppressed and all that. And, but that's fine. And that's an interesting mode of analysis we can talk about. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that uh, a billionaire or an alleged billionaire, but a former president of the United States or, or back when he was a current president of the United States, wasn't an elite. And, and again, there's nothing per se wrong with any of this, but it helps you understand that nobody out there that you actually hear that gets time on television or that holds public office isn't already in a member, a member of the elite when they start railing against the elite. Um, they're just a different faction of it. And, um, and that's natural and normal. The only problem is like, I don't know, in 1800s England, you didn't hear a lot of, maybe you heard some weird self-hating, you know, members of the House of Lords or something. But for the most part, you didn't hear members of the aristocracy denouncing aristocracy. Um, and we get this thing in our politics where you get elitists pretending that they're against elitism. I mean, my God, I mean, you know, Tucker, Tucker Carlson almost every night you know, plays this role of, you know, waving the bloody toga against the elites and whatnot. You know, Tucker has an island off the coast of Maine. I believe he's, you know, an heir to the Swanson fortune. He makes millions of dollars on Fox News. He's the highest rated show on Fox, on, on cable television, I think. Um, in no way, shape or form is he not an elite. He's just speaking. He's just saying the things that um, a lot of non-elites want to hear about a different faction of elites. And, um, and I think it, it's, it's a useful sort of way, it's a useful prism to think about these things in part because it bleeds a lot of the populist asininity that is so baked into these arguments out of it. All these people at the American mind, all these people, they want to be, you know, you know, the spokesman for some branch of some elite and they see people in their way. And some of them, again, are sincere in their arguments and think that the existing elites are bad and wrong and evil and yada, yada, yada. Um, but I think just as often, and in some cases more often, they're making these arguments because 
these are the nearest weapons to hand to dislodge the elites that are in their way. Um, so anyway, enough with all that, at least for now. Today's G file I wrote about, uh, oh, one last thing. Cause so this is a problem, right? So one of the criticisms I got about the G file yesterday or on Wednesday that it was, it started too silly. I had this stuff about Star Trek and the episode Spock's brain, which many people believe to be the worst episode of Star Trek. And it became this, it lent itself to this metaphor I was using of like only having so much time to write it. And, and it's true. I often like in today's G file, I often begin the G files kind of silly, partly as just a way to break the ice, both for the reader and for my own brain to get going. And, um, and that's because I write the G file the day it's due. Usually I only have a few hours to do it. I think given those circumstances, it's a pretty good product for want of a better term. And I think a lot of readers, that's one of the things they like about it is that it's not super polished and it's just me taking a can opener, you know, to my cranium and spilling out what's in my head. And it's not like I can't write polished stuff in the syndicated column is more considered when I write magazine pieces or books. I don't use that voice or that tone or whatever. But one of the drawbacks of it is that I think that piece and also the piece I wrote today, if I wrote it over two weeks, I could hone it into something really, you know, good and, and with a better shelf life and the, you know, it would be, it would have fewer jokes in it. Um, but one of the problems with those jokes is they signal to some readers not to take the, the serious stuff seriously. And also you just forget to include important parts of an argument that were in your head, but you're just racing to hit a deadline. And, you know, so that's like how I mentioned in last Friday's G file, I had this point I had wanted to make about how one of the reasons why the media criticism stuff flourished is simply because on in blogging is because you could write that sufficiently short in a way that can never be published in conventional media, but is perfect for blog posts. And that opened up blogging to a certain style and form of, of writing. And I, I didn't quite get that in the G file and it bothered me. It bothers me when I miss stuff. Anyway, when I was writing the thing about the 80-20 rule and all that kind of stuff, I said, honestly, because I didn't have time to like super delve into it about how much of an iron rule this is in life. I mean, I, I don't think that the 80-20 distribution is as hardwired into nature and political science and whatever as like the Fibonacci series is or something like that. But it is a good, it's sort of not a rule, it's sort of a good rule of thumb kind of thing that pops up in lots of places. And I had some language to that effect saying, I don't know how often this actually applies in the real world. And my friend Kevin Williamson wrote me tagging that line saying, um, I think it works about four out of five times. And I, it just kills me because that, I'm not trying to denigrate Kevin. It's, it's like an obviously good joke that I should have used and I couldn't have, um, you know, that the 80, 20 rule works about, you know, 80, 20. Anyway, um, today's G file. It's, it's a theme I've gotten back to, and it plays off of some of this elite stuff in so far as, um, I've been reading a lot of this David Shore guy. And, um, I, I gather that, um, the bulwark guys are still like dunking on me for saying I'm in favor of telling the truth and not becoming a partisan activist, but I'll put that aside as just 
um, silliness and um, point out that he actually, this David Shore guy who's like a self-declared socialist and he's a data geek guy, um, uh, has a really good interview on Charlie Sykes' podcast this week and it's worth listening to. Um, but one of the points that, that, that the Shore guy makes in, in there and also in stuff he's written in other interviews is that part of the problem with the Democratic Party these days is that it's become an ideological party. And I know that there are a lot of conservatives who think, well, that's always been the case. I mean, conservatives have a conservative ideology and we're fighting liberals who have a liberal ideology. And at one level, that actually is true, obviously. The Democratic Party is the more liberal party. But in a, an important meaningful sense, it's not really true. Um, uh, there's always been liberalism out there or progressivism or whatever you want to call it, but the democratic party was always, at least after Wilson, um, um, a coalitional party and both parties were coalitional parties in the 19th century. But like from FDR onward, you know, the the Democratic Party was certainly the more natural home for most liberals, though there were a lot of liberal Republicans, you know, um, going back, you know, for a long time. I mean, uh, not, and not just the sort of La Follette crowd in Wisconsin. Um, but, uh, you know, the whole fights in the GOP in 1960 um, between the sort of um, Rockefeller, well, the, sort of the Rockefeller wing when it actually existed and the Goldwaterites, who were then the insurgents, trying to become the new elite in the Republican Party. Um, the Republican Party used to have a lot of liberals in it. But my point is, is that the Democratic Party was really coalitional, which is why, like, the FDR coalition had everybody but from Teamsters and construction workers in it to um, sort of intellectual communists, uh, communist Jews and blacks and socialists, and, and also had, you know, Dixiecrat Southern um, senators and, and, and racists in it. Um, it was simultaneously, it had a civil rights wing and an anti-civil rights wing all within the same party. And that's one of the things that, that majority parties often have is they have factions that disagree with each other within them. That's why they're majorities. Minority parties tend to be minorities because they don't have enough factions in them to become majorities. And that's one of the reasons why if you want the Republican Party to be a majority party, you're going to have to let in people who disagree with, um, you know, the base, for want of a better term, or the CPAC crowd. If you only want people who subscribe to sort of pure injected into my veins CPAC stuff, it's going to be a rump party um, forever because there aren't enough Americans who want that. And anyway. Uh, the, and the uh, one way to think about this is, you know, Reagan always used to say, if you agree with us on seven out of 10 things, you should be part of us. And that was basically a ideological or ideational thing. And the democratic party was, we will give you what you want. If you help us give these other factions what they want, which is why, you know, well into the two thousands, the party of both the teamsters, um, and the party of gay marriage were in one party. Um, there's nothing logical that says that they should be in the same party. But um, when you have coalitional politics, that's how that kind of thing works. That's how Popular Front works. 
Um, but anyway, so David Shore makes this argument that the Democratic Party is becoming ideological. And he argues that a big chunk of that is being driven by white liberals and what I refer to in the G file as gentry liberals. And, you know, gentry is sort of an old fashioned word. And I didn't come up with the term gentry liberals. Barone has used it. Uh, Henry Olson has used it. Ryan Salam has used it. But, you know, the gentry in England, as I understand it, were basically just the step down from the aristocrats or the nobility. They were the prosperous upscale types who are right up at the at the cusp of actual you know nobility so not not in fact the ruling class but um just next to it and in america because we don't really have per se ruling class gentry liberals form the ranks of the ideological core of the democratic party and something really remarkable happened in around 2014, 2015, which was the first time in, in, at least in the history of serious opinion research, that white liberals became um, more liberal than black liberals, more liberal than Hispanics, or, you know, Hispanic Democrats and black Democrats, if you want to be more technical about it. And, um, and white liberals all of a sudden became more inclined to describe um, to ex- more inclined to explain that the problems afflicting black people are due to racism, white supremacy, structural racism, whatever than actual black people are. Um, and I think that this has to do in part with um, the fact that we've seen an utter cratering of organized religion, particularly on the left. Um, the mainline Protestant churches are shells of what they once were and what has filled this void. And I know this is a recurring theme of mine has been politics and basically this new woke kind of ideology, what people are calling the great awakening, which happened around, you know, which happened about not quite 10 years ago. And, the problem with Shore, again, Shore is a, you know, he was an Obama data geek and he's a declared socialist. He's a man on the left, but at least so far, he's pretty, you know, clear eyed about where the data are and how politics works. Um, uh, he says this is a real problem for Democrats because only about 20% of the country define themselves as liberal to begin with. And not even all of those people buy into the sort of Beto O'Rourke 1619 project, super woke, um, uh, you know, anti-racism stuff that defines the sort of the elite of the elite of these gentry liberals. And that's a real problem for the Democrats because the more the Democratic Party is associated with that stuff, the more it chases rank and file Democrats um, toward or, or chases pushes rank and file Democrats towards Republicans, and you know it's interesting as a rule of thumb. I haven't I haven't studied. You know he was you know, he he says this stuff in interviews, pretty sort of um, um back of the envelope. You know sort of you know without a lot of precision, but he basically says, look, about forty percent of Americans call themselves conservative, about. 
20 to about 30% call themselves moderates and about 20% call themselves liberals. I looked at the data a little bit, you know, it, it fluctuates, but as, as a back of the envelope thing, it's, it's more or less right. And the interesting thing is that this applies to Hispanics and blacks as well. And when you stop making the Democratic Party a coalitional party where people are invested in the party because it aligns with their, you know, true self-interest, and instead it's this ideological commitment thing, um, you're going to chase away some of those people. And, you know, so he says, you know, one of the reasons why uh, Hispanics moved in significant not overwhelming, but significant numbers towards Trump in 2020 was precisely because the Democratic Party made no effort to um, signal that it wasn't beholden to the sort of wokeism. You know, the defund the police thing, which Shore argues um, was a main driver of, of the Hispanic migration. Um, and he points out what's interesting, to, one of the more interesting things about it is that the Hispanic voters who were more likely to move towards Trump were in fact women, not men. Um, you know, there's this lot of talk about how, you know, the gender gap is explaining why Hispanics and, and blacks were moving a little bit more towards Trump. And it turns out that at least with Hispanics, that really wasn't the case. And one of the things that pushed them, pushed Hispanic women that way was that, um, the defund the police stuff is such hot garbage, um, that it, it, it scared them. And, um, you know, to me, it's, it's, you know, probably the best single sort of data point or illustration of this problem is this Latin X stuff. Um, you know, which I keep pointing out, most Hispanics either completely reject or haven't heard of. Um, and the idea of like degenderizing Spanish is, is impossible. And it turns out that, you know, a lot of Hispanics, maybe even most Hispanics, uh, would rather call themselves Mexican-American, Cuban-American, Cuban, Mexican, American. Um, you know, and this is one of these things that just sort of has always driven me crazy about how we lump in Hispanics, which includes everybody from full-blooded white Spaniards um, to Cubans, to Brazilians, to... Um, Peruvians and Mexicans as quote unquote Hispanics. And if you actually ever talk to people from those various countries or, or from those, you know, immigrant communities in the United States or descendants of those immigrant communities in the United States, um, they'll tell you there's some like really, really big differences between Mexicans and Guatemalans. And it's not a racist point. It's just simply a cultural point. It's not racist to say that, um, Germans are very different than Greeks because they are, it's just an objective fact. And so when you go around doing this Latinx stuff um, and, you know, and, and saying how, uh, you know, I remember Elizabeth Warren was really bought into all of the intersex transgender stuff. Uh, that's, that's not going to work on a lot of, you know, uh, traditional Catholic Hispanic communities. And one of the points that, you know, it, it dovetails with all the stuff I've been saying about parties for a very long time. One of the points that I heard Shore make on Morning Joe the other day is that as the parties become, as I keep saying, more like parliamentary, par parliamentary parties are worse, just like brand names. It, and as, as polarization gets rid of split ticket voting, 
um, and people just vote party line, it becomes increasingly difficult for sane, moderate members of a party to claim that they should be um, thought of as differently than just the R or the D after their name. You know, if you're going to vote straight ticket and you form your impressions, basically in part because social media and cable news highlight the worst versions of each party, you know, I mean, how I, my hunch is that Marjorie Taylor Greene is on MSNBC and CNN a hell of a lot more than she's on Fox. And, you know, I know that AOC is on Fox a hell of a lot more than she's on, you know, MSNBC and whatnot. If you do the sort of, or Elon Omar, which is probably a better example since, since AOC is kind of like the sleigh queen for a lot of these MSNBC types. But if you do your nut picking and you show off the worst parts of the other party, it becomes difficult for the other, for the same members of the other party to distinguish themselves from it. And so you get this sort of, um, catalytic effect, you know, this reinforcing effect from it. And, and so part of the point that, that Shore makes, which a lot of liberals don't want to hear, and frankly, I'm not delighted to hear either, is that Trump may have been very good for the Republican Party precisely because he elicited this super woke response that um, further polarized the electorate. And polarization is better for the for most part for the right than it is for the left in much of the same way that identity politics is actually better for the right than the left. Um, I know it's counterintuitive, but and I linked to this piece in the G file about it, but um, you know, Sherry Berman, who's a famous progressive, you know, left-wing academic, um, but very interesting. Um, and, and Jonathan Haidt has pointed this out too, is that the more you call people racist, the more likely you are to turn them into racists. Um, the more you attack people as being simply by virtue of the color of their skin or the, 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 by virtue of, you know, who their ancestors were, um, you know, racists and bigots or, and, and inheritors of, sl of slave masters or whatever, the more likely you are to force those people to, to create psychological defense mechanisms that drive them away from you. It's not a persuasive way to talk to people. And, and this sort of gets me sort of the end of the G file and I'll stop talking about it now. But, um, you know, I bring this stuff up admittedly in part to criticize the left because I'm a conservative and I think identity politics is evil. And I think the 1619 project, despite some interesting and good things in it was fundamentally corrupt and, and, and deceitful and dishonest and bad for the country. Um, so I, I, I have no problem pointing that stuff out, but the larger problem is, is that as the more the sort of great awakening um, takes hold of the Democratic Party. And it's very difficult to see how that stops because the Great Awakening infects the minds of the journalists who write about politics from the mainstream media. And, you know, as I say in the GFL, everybody you see on MSNBC, whether they're the guests, um, the hosts, or the, you know, Democratic interview subjects, they're all operating within this elite bubble that thinks this woke stuff is not just normal, um, because it is normal in their bubble, but that it's, it's nigh upon religious dogma and that people who disagree with it are heretics and bad. 
And so you get politicians who see this stuff on TV and they think that's how you have to talk when you get on TV. And that's why you get more Beto O'Rourke's than you do Joe Manchin's. Um, it becomes self-perpetuating. And the larger problem for the country is that it elicits a similar response from the right, which is why you have the right getting more and more nationalistic and more and more embracing, admittedly more coded, its own version of identity politics. Um, because the secularization of this country, it's afflicting the left more than the right, but it's afflicting both. And you're seeing two competing political religions form that are competing with each other. Um, and because they are essentially Manichaean and see themselves as definitionally, um, the opposite of the other side, that's super dangerous. And what's get killed, get killed in the crossfire is my kind of conservatism, which actually doesn't want to impose one faction's vision on the entire country, but actually wants to get back to the more constitutional scheme of the founders, which lets different communities live in different ways and different factions um, live in their own bubbles to one extent or another, and that's fine. You only get into trouble when one small faction, that particularly one that is imbued with um, religious fervor about the rightness of its positions, even if it won't call it a religion, takes over the levers of power and then thinks it has a mandate to impose its vision on everybody else. Um, and this is, as I say, this point is transparent, incandescently obvious to almost everybody when you're talking about the dangers of the other team getting in power. And then for fascinating psychological reasons, it becomes utterly unpersuasive when you say it also applies to their team too. Um, you know, I don't want the post-liberal post integralists imposing their vision on the country any more than I want the, you know, the woke his, hipsters imposing their vision on the country. Um, and uh, the more each side acts as if it has a mandate to do just that, um, the more intense the, the quasi-religious conviction on each side is going to become and the more catastrophized our politics becomes. Um, all right, speaking of catastrophes, uh, a quick point or two about the Biden um, COVID relief package and all that. I think it is... I, I wrote my column about this, this my LA Times column about it this week. It's up at the dispatch. Um, I think this is what you get when both parties basically abdicate any credibility about caring about debt or deficits. Um, I also think, though, that it's, which I haven't written about, there's also just something that is going on in um, elite policymaking circles that just says inflation is something that doesn't exist anymore. And inflation and monetary policy is one of these topics I studiously avoid. And one of the people I rely on in this stuff is Ramesh. And Ramesh tells me not to worry too much about inflation. Um, and he can, you know, uh, he can roll the desiccated chicken feet on the Ouija board to prove it. And I, I'll kind of take his word for it. But regardless, even if he's right that inflation really isn't something to be worried about right now, 
you get a certain kind of politics and policymaking when no one worries about inflation. And, um, and one of the things you get is a $1.9 trillion blunderbuss of a bill that drenches money all over the entire country. And I talked about this a bit with Michael Strain last week. Um, you know, and I, so I, I have a sort of pox on all your houses stuff. I think Biden's full of crap when he says, you know, this came not a moment too soon. And that for a year, um, the previous administration or Republicans, I don't, can't remember the exact phrasing, but he says for the last year, um, Americans have been told you're on your own during this pandemic, which is just revisionist horse hockey. Um, this 1.9 trillion comes on top of, uh, you know, three and a half, four trillion dollars. If you include the stuff that the Federal Reserve did, which it wasn't technically spending, but it was weird loan guarantees and, 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 you know, various forms of, you know, sacrificing of oxen and whatnot. Um, that's like another $5 trillion on the books. Um, uh, you know, the Trump administration sent out trillions of dollars um, on a bipartisan basis. I think Mitch McConnell's absolutely right that the Republicans behaved in a bipartisan fashion during the, the pandemic in terms of the CARES Act and PPP and all that stuff. Um, but uh, that said, you know, I, there's, there is some stuff in there that's worth doing. It's just not 1.9 trillion worth. And I think that one of the things Biden is actually being very smart about is he is um, behaving more like not, not in his executive orders and some of his speeches and that stuff, but in terms of the legislative front, he's behaving more like an old style Democrat and just reigning Benjamins on members of his party's coalition, which is as we talked about with um, um, uh, Dan De Silva, De Silva, the public sector union guy. I'm sorry, I'm very tired. Uh, a big chunk of that are, you know, state and local public sector unions, workers, um, you know, uh, healthcare professionals, all that kind of stuff. He's lavishing a lot of those constituencies, particularly teachers unions with cash. And it's not cash just to deal with the pandemic. This is cash that is going to be spent over the next, you know, two to three years at least. Um, and, but the American people bought into it because one, they want their money. And two, we are living in this sort of post-inflation, post-debt, post-deficit concern era. And, um, you know, who wouldn't want to get their slice, particularly after such an awful year, um, when both parties have either said or demonstrated that they don't actually take debt and deficit arguments seriously. And yeah, yeah, there are individual people who do, but there are few in number. You know, Pat Toomey and uh, Mitt Romney, I think, and a few others. But for the most part, the GOP went along with a massive explosion of debt under Trump. Trump actually wanted to give, send even bigger checks out to people. Um, the brand, at, the at, the, at, the, at the top level, the branding of the GOP is now... And I think absolutely fairly, a, the branding is, it's a party that cares about debt and deficit and spending only when it's Democrats doing 
the spending. And in that sort of climate, you know, why wouldn't this thing be popular? Um, and so let me, let me talk about, well, two other things. One, the, um, his, uh, Biden's big speech, which was last night, God, time is a flat circle. I think it was last night. Um, where he, uh, um, yeah, it was last night because yesterday was the 11th. Um, he commemorated the one year anniversary of it being a pandemic and, and the passage of the bill and all this stuff. And the reaction from the right, I think was, you know, again, it depends who you talk to the people who, um, snark and shout on cable news and own the libs on Twitter. Um, is basically, this is a senile old man. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, oh, look how he, you know, he stumbles on words, yada, 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 which is part of this larger um, obsession on parts of the right these days to dismiss Biden as a senile puppet. Um, and I heard someone, someone today was talking about how some people um, think Jill Biden is really the, the, the you know, is the, power is the Edith Wilson behind the throne or the Rasputin or the Colonel house or whatever. Um, and like, if you actually looked at her PhD thesis, you would not immediately leap to the conclusion that, uh, this woman is the, I mean, she seems like a nice lady, but, uh, that this woman is the Carl Rove of the administration getting into granular detail about um, public policy making. Um, but that's not my real point. My real point is, is that first of all, I just think I'll be completely honest. I mean, I wrote about this in my column this week. Biden's definitely lost a step. I've been saying that for a couple of years now, if you watched him in the eighties and nineties, um, or the, even as vice president, he was a much more, first of all, more loquacious. Um, and, uh, he would, he was still prone to saying absolutely bizarre things when he was 40. I mean, that's, that's been true forever. I mean, the corn pop thing isn't some sign of, of, uh, old age dementia setting. in. if you go back and you watch, you know, his old hearings or when he told Katie Kirk about FDR going on TV after the 1929 stock market crash, um, when FDR wasn't president and no one had TVs, um, you know, he says he's always said weird stuff. Um, I wrote a big piece for National Review in I think 2012, recounting a lot of this, the crazy things he used to say. One of my favorite examples was that he loved to talk about how, um, you know, he would give the uh, credit where due. They were sometimes moving, and I, and I sincerely think they were heartfelt. These speeches, you know, uh, celebrating the military and particularly those who had fallen in battle. And he would quote from Milton, um, you know, of paradise lost fame, but then he would refer to, um, soldiers who gave their lives fighting for their countries as fallen angels. And look, I get where he thinks he's coming from on that, but the only problem is particularly if you're quoting Milton, um, you shouldn't call these guys fallen angels because like in paradise lost, the fallen angel is Satan. Um, but he always had this sort of, you know, thing about trying to sound more intellectual than he was and more literary than he was. And, you know, as I often joke, he used to 
you never knew when he was going to start shouting, get these squirrels off of me. Or, you know, um, you know, these armadillos are too expensive. And, um, but the, the thing on the right about him being this doddering senile old fool, um, I think, first of all, it puts, it risks right wingers seeming like cruel assholes. Um, because I, the polling supports this. He is the most popular new president we've seen in decades. You know, normally you see this drop off in support um, after they get into office by now, and that has not happened. And people tend to like the guy and are kind of, you know, hoping for the best. Certainly the marginal voter that the GOP needs um, so far still likes the guy. And going around making stupid jokes about how, um, you know, they had to wipe the drool off of him before he came out um, or obsessing about this stupid press conference thing. Um, yeah, he should give a press conference. There you go. But um, um, as if it's, you know, proof that, you know, he's uh, got, you know, one and a half feet in the grave and that he's um, deranged, not only does it risk making you seem like a jerk saying that when other people don't want to hear it, it also plays into, you know, the, the old rule of underestimating your opponents. I mean, he got this thing passed. This thing is huge and it is a big deal. And he did get elected and no, he didn't steal the election. Um, and he won in the primaries and, you know, you have to give a little credit. People used to constantly talk about how George W. Bush was an idiot and that was an advantage for him. They did the same thing to Reagan where they called him, you know, this old fool who was out of touch and all that kind of stuff. And he used that to his advantage because, you know, it's, it's to your advantage when your political opposition underestimates. And I think one of the things that, you know, is telling is that Mitch McConnell doesn't do that stuff because uh, he understands that and he knows Biden very well. Um, and so there has to be some sort of middle ground between um, praising Biden as this, you know, political super genius, which I don't think he is, um, you know, and this new FDR and yada, 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 and claiming that, you know, Kamala Harris or Jill Biden are, you know, pulling the political equivalent of weekend at Bernie's, um, with this guy, uh, cause you know, yeah, he should give a press conference, but it's not like he's hiding from public view. He, he's out there. He gives speeches. He talks people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's scripted, but again, given Biden's tendencies to, you know, uh, offer up gaffes and say weird things and forget people's names and whatnot, which I do think is real. Um, I don't fault the political operation of the Biden White House from limiting the opportunities for that kind of thing to happen. And it is entirely fair game for Republicans to try to bait him into giving a press conference and whatnot. But it's one thing to sort of understand that as the nature of the politics. It's another thing to sort of use this narrative about Biden to reassure yourself that you don't have to pay attention to what he's doing or that um, uh, that, you know, any day now he will demonstrate, uh, that he's a doddering fool who's, you know, being propped up, uh, better to sort of until proven otherwise, take the guy seriously and treat him seriously 
and you know at least modestly respectfully um and i don't say that because like i think we owe our politicians this great amount of respect i wrote my column about how ludicrous it is that people think that it's impossible to make fun of joe biden i think making fun of politicians is deeply wired into you know american culture and it's a generally good thing but as a political matter um denigrating and trying to humiliate a guy that is pretty popular who just passed a piece of legislation that half of Republicans support um, and trying to say that the legislation proves he's a doddering, drooling fool just strikes me as not only just like crass and rude, but just bad politics. Um, last thing on Biden speaking of bad politics, I do not get the messaging. Yes, yes, I understand. There's a bunch of people try to tell me on Twitter that he's under-promising and over-delivering, and I get that, and I've written columns about that. I, I understand the point. This is not some, like, you know, incredibly brilliant insight about what he's doing and all that. But a year after the, a year into the pandemic, with what seems to be a flood of vaccines on the way, talking to people as if the vaccines won't in fact markedly change people's lives and you'll still have to wear masks and all that, which his administration keeps doing, I think is a bad idea. I mean, I've said this before. I think the Israeli way of marketing this stuff makes a lot more sense saying get vaccinated and that way you get to go back to life as normal. And it doesn't mean that, you know, once you're vaccinated in Israel that you get to go eat indoors and do all those things or whatever, but you do get to live like a more normal person afterwards. And this messaging about like the 4th of July, if you actually look at the phrasing, I think he could have conveyed the exact same thing if he just had a better speechwriter. I think it's just bad speechwriting because he said, look, you know, unfortunately, the, the contact, the content, the substance of what he was saying was, yeah, we may not be able to have massive parades or gatherings on the mall with tens of thousands of people on the 4th of July, but we will be able to get, we likely will be able to get to the point where most adults will be vaccinated and they'll be able to have barbecues with their friends and family, which is what people wanted to hear. But he had to sort of qualify it and play with it in a way that made it sound like um, you can only be with your nuclear family and it has to be a very small gathering and all that kind of thing. Well, if it's just your nuclear family, that's what people were doing on the 4th of July last, you know, the, you know last 4th of July. That's not a change. And giving people a little more optimism without sounding like a scold or being terrified of having to sort of apologize for being a little more optimistic. I mean, let's put it this way. There is an enormous amount of space between telling people, even after you're vaccinated, you can't hug your grandchildren, which I know the CDC finally changed on, or that even after you're vaccinated, you still have to wear masks or we, or, um, we won't be back to normal until next Christmas. There's a difference between doing that stuff and doing what Trump did, which was saying, oh, this thing will go to zero in a few days because I have this mind bequeathed to me by my physicist uncle that lets me understand epidemiology better than anybody or him pulling out of his, um, Corey Lewandowski um, the, uh, idea that it'll just go away in the spring, um, around Easter, because that sounds like a beautiful message. Um, there's a difference between just simply freelancing, uh, condo salesman BS 
and giving people rational, reasonable reasons to be optimistic is, uh, you know, the dispatch's own Scott Linsicum has been writing. Um, and I, I, I thought that some of the dourness coming out of the Biden administration was um, attributable to the fact that they were waiting to get this bill passed. And then all of a sudden he would spin things in a rosier way. Um, I'm starting to think that that's not the case. I don't think it's necessarily that all these people cannot imagine relinquishing the wonderful power that a public health crisis gives them. I think it's probably a psychological factor with some people. Um, but it does seem like they're, they've got, you know, their sticks too far up their butts about this stuff and need to start signaling that, you know, happy days are coming quickly and before you know it. And, um, and otherwise they're in danger of just sort of being overtaken by, you know, Republican governors who are opening up much more quickly and then forcing the Biden administration into this killjoy stance of calling people Neanderthals and all that stuff. And that will work if, you know, if Larry Hogan and, and Abbott and all these people are wrong and all of a sudden we see some massive um, explosion in new cases in Maryland or, or, or Texas, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. And, um, and the memory that people might have of it is like, uh, you know, he's this eat your spinach guy beyond the, the necessity for it. And anyway, I just think it, the messaging is off key and, and a mistake. All right. Um, I promised I wasn't going to go too long and, um, I, uh, so I'm not going to talk about Dr. Seuss, which I've managed to do for the most part during all of this stuff. Um, just a logistical note, Chris Darwalt is going to be subbing for me on Tuesday. Uh, please tune in. I will to see how he does. I'm sure he'll do great. And I want to thank him for doing it. And I leave Sunday for this cross country adventure with my wife and daughter. Uh, we're going to end up in Yosemite, but we're going to, we're going to go to the rock and roll hall of fame and we're going to go to um, uh, stay with some family in Park City. And of course, I should have learned from, you know, um, the wrath of uh, Mr. Coldmiser um, when I was in Austin that whenever I try to, you know, uh, venture forth out of off the East Coast, uh, the Arctic uh, spirits attack. And so apparently there's some really terrifying winter weather coming down on the route that we were planning on. So we'll see how that goes. Um, I do plan on writing my column and filing G file and all that kind of stuff from the road. Maybe I'll take one or two days off here or there, but um, this is my daughter's spring break and it's her last spring break before college. And we're trying to cram in as much family time as we can before um, my wife and I become empty nest nesters. Um, so I'm doing it. And I, also just kind of need a vacation and it's a working vacation. So get off my back. Um, anyway, uh, so I don't know what that means for uh, canine stuff on Twitter um, or the canine update, but I'll, I'll make do as best I can. And again, thank you to everybody for um, all the kind notes we've gotten around here and for the sport in all sorts of ways and, for, and particularly for the members of the dispatch. Uh, I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.